If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Yes, it's it's Monday, and yes, it's twelve o'clock, and yes, it's the week after Thanksgiving. I think this is called Cyber Monday, isn't it? I don't really shop in quite the sort of frenzied way that I think many of my compatriots do, but um, whatever, have a have a happy shopping day if that's what you do. Anyway, uh, oh yes, this is what doesn't kill you: food industry insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. And just a reminder, people, at the top of the show, I'm just going to say it again: press the button for a donation. This is our fall fundraising drive. We really need your money. Uh, We really need your support. Um, And, you know, keep in mind that we are now reaching a million people a month, a month, a million people a month, maybe at many a week. I'm not even sure. But I do know that our station has grown from just a few hundred listeners eight years ago to kind of a powerhouse in the food journalism world. So uh, hit that button, make a donation, join the join the family, join the HRN family. It's a great family to be part of. So um, we're going to start the Joys and Sorrows segment. My guest today is going to be uh, Balin Linekin. He is the author of Biting the Hands That Feed Us, and we'll learn more about that, but he's going to talk about rules and regulations. I always like talking about rules. Um, and uh, But before that, of course, we have our Joys and Sorrows segment. So let me start off by saying something that is just, I thought, the best news in the world, and that is dogs have a memory, and cockatoos can both make and use tools. In other words, the new world order is emerging just in time, and about time it is, before the uh, chimp in chief, chief chimp, (laughs) the chimp in chief. We can't go back to chimp. That was George W. Bush. We have to call him the Cheeto, or my favorite name, which my friend Greg Decker came up with, um, and which I am desperately trying to publicize, and that's the Gropenfuhrer, which I think really, really... Says it all, right? The Gropenfuhrer. Um, it's so interesting what's going on with the election results. Like now he's saying that. <laughs> I love this. He can't shut his yap. He can't quit, quit tweeting. He has to say the election was rigged because there were two and a half more million votes than for him than there were for uh, for Hillary than they were for him. And so he's now he's saying even though he won the electoral college, he's saying that the vote was rigged. I mean, this guy. Okay, if you say it was rigged, all right, let's go back and have a recount. Let's do it all over again. I think that would be really good. Uh, in a recent newsletter, apropos of the election. Uh, in a recent newsletter that the Times Insider that was sent to Times Insiders, this is, a, I guess, an elite core of readership within the New York Times. They asked uh, the Times asked readers how they are feeling in the aftermath of the election: optimistic, pessimistic, or neutral. The consensus was clear: ninety-five percent of respondents felt pessimistic, while three percent felt optimistic and two percent felt neutral. And there were nine hundred comments on the poll results, but I could not. Uh, discern how much of the population was sampled. I have no idea how many people that involved, um, but it still is a pretty sad story. I'm still in recovery. I, I have to be honest with you. I am totally still in recovery from the Trump election, and that's why we have a very short Joys and Sorrows segment today, because I honestly couldn't even read the damn newspaper. And uh, the trades are not looking all that interesting either, because nothing has happened in terms of identifying a Secretary of the Interior, a Secretary of, of Agriculture, the things that I care about, especially, I mean, not that I don't care about the whole show, but especially about those two topics, which are sort of my bailiwick. Uh, We don't have any real information, but on on the plus side, on the good news side, if you're a D.C. resident, our current uh, Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, his portrait will be unveiled at 2 p.m. on Thursday in the USDA administration building, and I know you won't want to miss that event if you can possibly make it. 
Tom Vilsack, it turns out, is the longest serving secretary of agriculture in the history of our nation, or so it said in this article I read. Anyway, if uh, one last thing, a PSA, and that is a public service announcement. If you are a fan of Sabra brand hummus, check your packages. If they are marked best before January 23rd, get rid of them. They may or may not be contaminated with listeria. I promise you don't want to find that out the hard way. So definitely check your packaging. The date again, best before January 23rd. And by the way, don't eat sprouts. I don't know why sprouts are even continued to be sold. It's They are a bacteria-laden poison time bomb waiting to infect your sandwich and thus you. It, they carry E. coli, they carry salmonella, they carry listeria, they can carry norovirus, which is just from people's hands. But the fact is, is that the warm growing conditions, the water, the watery medium in which they're grown are all primary sources for rapid bacterial growth. And uh, they are so often a vector for disease. So please don't eat sprouts, even if you make them yourself. So that's it for my joys and sorrows segment. Dave, you can run our commercial. We'll have a sponsor drop now. And then we'll be right back with the excellent uh, author, Balin Linekin talking about fighting the hands that feed us, how fewer, smarter laws would make our food system more sustainable. And this one's called French Entrance by Teeth People. We'll be right back. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified Seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. Oh, yeah. I'm loving that music, Dave. That was excellent. Um, We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting from the Heritage Radio Network uh, live from Bushwick in Brooklyn. And I happen to be seated right next to the deuce. Um, There's a plexiglass window in our shipping container, and there is a couple that is chowing down in such a major way. I'm literally drooling here. They just had some braised pork ribs. Now one of them is having a cheeseburger, and the other one is having a pizza margarita. And I am crying. I am crying with envy. Wait, can I, I, can I just... Uh, did you call the two-top the deuce? Yeah. <laughs> I've never that... heard anybody say that before. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, um, just, just a little aside on the fact that I have not eaten breakfast and I'm starving and these people are killing me. Anyway, welcome to the show, Balin Lenekin. Balin is a food lawyer and an adjunct professor at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School where he teaches food law and policy. He is a founding board member of the Academy of Food Law and Policy and serves on the board of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Lenikin's writings have appeared in the Wisconsin Law Review, Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly, Chapman Law Review, Boston Globe, New York Post, Des Moines Register, Reason, Huffington Post, Vice, Reason, and elsewhere. You have Reason twice there, Balin. You need a little, yeah, anyway. Um, your new book, which I'm ex- I was really excited to read, is called Biting the Hand That Feeds Us, How Fewer, Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable. Sustainable. It came out from Island Press just about two months ago, and it reveals how regulations often proscribe sustainable food practices. So anyway, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Katie, thanks very much for having me on. Oh, sure. I heard your interview on Lopate. I was really pissed that I didn't scoop him. I like to be ahead of him on these books, but, you know, I guess your publicist was a little quicker on the draw than I was. Um, but anyway, it was <laughs> you did a really good job. I mean, I like Leonard Lopate. Um but uh, 
he is great, but I'm going to do a better job of interviewing you because I know more than he does about the food system. So, um, so let's just get right into it. I'm not going to go through any nonsense about why did you write the book, blah, 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 who cares? Your book addresses four major areas where you see regulations getting in the way of sustainable food systems. So those four areas are food safety, farm subsidies, food waste, and regulations against growing your own food. Give us some of the more egregious examples of where government interference through regulations is keeping us in, you know, in each one of those categories. Give us a little example of how these, you know, dumb regulations get in the way of better quality food for all. Sure. Just uh, starting at the beginning, um, food safety takes up a good chunk of the book. And, uh, you know, we have rules, uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act, um, the FDA and, and USDA rules that essentially don't make us or our food safer, um, but often handcuff smaller, sustainable producers. And you know, FISMO is uh, opposed by many uh, small and, and or organic farming advocates, for example, because it would have turned manure, as I read in the book, um, you know, into some sort of uh, toxin that uh, would be uh, severely curtailed. And obviously manure is the lifeblood of organic agriculture. That's one example. Um, can I, can I the, stop you the, right there for one second, though? Because I was I was perplexed by that. Because um, can you identify the rule that said that they couldn't use it? Because, I mean, after all, uh, you know, animal waste is sprayed. It's one of the ways that CAFOs manage their waste is by making that slurry and spreading it uh, periodically over fields around them. And I, I have never heard of any major regulations that prevent people from doing that. I mean, this is part of the of the mega agribusiness. So I was just curious, like, how many times, they what, they can only use manure once a year? Or what was the story with that? Explain to me. Um, yeah, sure. So the uh, under the Food Safety Modernization Act, which uh, you know, are the rules that... Uh, uh, were adopted uh, recently after a law that was passed uh, mm-hmm. about five years ago. Yeah, 2011. Um, maybe yeah. six years ago, I guess now. Um, and uh, so under the under FISMA, the FDA proposed uh, to restrict the use of manure uh, in agriculture, and this was, again, something that was opposed uh, very vociferously uh, by advocates uh, for organic food. It would have basically said that you can't apply manure. I think it would have extended it well beyond what the USDA defines as uh, appropriate. I think the USDA has somewhere between 45 and 60 days before you can apply and uh, as a recommendation for essentially aging the manure uh, to make sure that um, any uh, bacteria has left it, or harmful bacteria, that is. The FDA, I believe, proposed to extend that to 90 days. Um, and so this would have made manure, uh, you know, storage uh, mm-hmm. an issue. It would have uh, hurt organic farmers, and it would have, frankly, uh, run up against the USDA's regulations and created some sort of interagency uh, stink, pun intended. Um, <laughs> Good one. Good and, one, Balin. <laughs> and so this... Uh, yeah, this was thankfully the the U.S. Uh, the FDA rather uh, walked back the rules. Said, you know, we're not going to enforce it, but it did ask, and this is always terrifying. Um, it asked uh, organic farmers to essentially prove to the agency that their practices are safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, you know, the clock is ticking basically on uh, small organic farmers uh, who want to apply manure to, you know, to to grow their crops. Sure. I just find it incredible that something like that would get passed um, only because mega agribusiness also deploys manure on a regular basis because otherwise they have an insurmountable amount of animal waste to dispose of um, in the you know, in the form of, of CAFOs. I mean, any CAFO worth its salt has like hundreds of millions of gallons of animal waste and they spray it quite regularly as far as I know. I don't think there's any, I mean, up until now, maybe in, in FISMA, but they, I mean, the, the big farmers up in Iowa and stuff like that, they're, I, I don't know. I'm surprised they didn't put a lot of, give a lot of pushback on that. So, but let's, let us move on. So you talk about food safety. Um, mm-hmm. You had a real thing on the, on the <laughs> You you were, I will avoid using this rude um, thing, but you were not a fan of FISMA. And in fact, on page 32 of your book, you describe some of the rules as inane, meaningless, and overzealous. 
So, I mean, isn't food safety something that should be sort of a paramount concern for all of us? And, and, and isn't that a goal that we all want to achieve? And doesn't everyone tremble in their boots at the thought of Donald Trump um, dissolving the uh, FSIS or something like that? I think he, he proposed getting rid of food safety rules altogether and just letting the market regulate itself. Um, so why do, you, why do you hate FISMA so much besides the manure issue? Um, well, it's, uh, you know, so when the, uh, the law was passed, the Tester-Hagen amendment was part of it, and that was supposed to exempt the, the smallest of the small farmers, mm-hmm. um, and it was supposed to do so based on um, how many foods or food products, agricultural products they would sell that were regulated under FSMA. Um And what the FDA did was completely botch that and say that, no, it actually applied to total farm sales. Uh-huh. And so right off, right off the bat, it turned, you know, if you were a small farmer and you were, uh, you know, raising some crops and you had some goats and, or sheep and you were selling wool, let's say, mm-hmm. then, you know, wool, wool is not something that's regulated under FISMA, but because you were making profits uh, or sales uh, off of your wool, that would have counted towards your on-farm Uh, gross sales. And so that basically would have ensnared a whole bunch of people in the regulatory process who otherwise wouldn't be uh, ensnared by that regulatory process and under which uh, Senators uh, Tester and then Senator uh, Hagan uh, had intended to to exempt farmers. So that was one huge problem in which the smallest of the small farmers uh, wrote very, very angry messages to the FDA and and ordering them to uh, to sort of leave us alone. Mm-hmm. But even for farmers who uh, are intended to be, and, and frankly, the, the FDA uh, did amend those rules before it published the final ones, but even you know other farmers are going to, and we're talking about farmers who make more than $25,000 a year, some of them are going to see their costs rise by $10,000 um, under the rule in terms of paperwork and other uh, irrigation processes, things like that. Uh-huh. You know, these are these are very, very small farmers who, you know, $10,000 is probably uh, their profit. And right. essentially it's going to drive them out of business. Um, so those are, are two sort of central issues. But an even more important, uh, yes, we want... Uh, food safety. We want food safety regulations, particularly ones that actually make us and our food safer. Right. Um, and I think that we both can agree that ones that don't make us uh, or our food safer are, are, are you know, misguided and, and probably wasteful. And the FDA's own estimates under the Food Safety Modernization Act of how much safer the you know will be under the the two key rules: one for good manufacturing processes, and the other one for produce. Uh, is that it will make us somewhere, again, these are the FDA's estimates, somewhere between 1% and 3% safer if those rules are implemented to perfection. Right. So in other words, it's adding a whole bunch of new costs to small farmers without actually making us or our food any safer. Interesting. You know, because, of course, I think of that cantaloupe. Was it cantaloupe in Colorado? And so many people got sick and quite a few people died, and it was because uh, the water that they were washing the can or had irrigated them with and they were not washing them properly. And so therefore so many people got sick. And I think that was a big catalyst for some of the rule changes that eventually wound up in FSMA. But um, you, you meant, you mentioned one thing that I, I have to say I agreed with you on and that was uh, the glove law. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how that promotes food waste and also promotes bacterial growth. Because I, I thought that I find that, you know, the glove law didn't exist when I was in food service. And boy, would I hate it now if I had to use them. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And so uh, in the book, I discussed the example of California, but many states, including uh, New York, have, have mm-hmm. these rules in place. Yeah. And so the basic premise, it's not so much creating food waste as it is creating uh, rubbish. Uh, so... The health regulators and lawmakers uh, have decided that what chefs and bartenders uh, should do to keep us safe is to wear disposable latex gloves. And this was a a law that took effect a couple years ago in in California that passed unanimously that had little or no opposition. Mm -hmm. And it seems at first glance, hey, if you're wearing gloves, then obviously you're, you're safer. Uh, and, and you know, if your if your hands have less bacteria on them, then great. That means that I'm less likely to get sick. And uh, norovirus, which I heard you allude to uh, or mention earlier yeah. um, in the show, 
is a very, very, it's the most common uh, form of foodborne illness. It's something like three out of every five cases in this country. People often hear about it on cruise ships, but, you know, you get it in restaurants, you get it at home, and it's basically caused by people going, if I may be crude, going to the bathroom and not washing their hands and then touching food. Yeah. Um, And so how do we prevent this? Gloves seem like a nice idea, but in fact they don't prevent that. They effectively uh, give cooks and others a sort of a false veneer of safety. They're going to handle raw chicken with those gloves. They're not going to wash their hands. They're certainly not going to wash their gloves. Then they're going to handle, um, you know, your salad, your uncooked salad, and then they're going to move on to the mm-hmm. next piece of food. So they're essentially using the gloves to transmit yeah, bacteria yeah. from one piece of food to another. And this is bizarre because, uh, you know, wearing gloves also, the gloves can rip, and so any, any bacteria that's on your hand underneath can then leach into the food. We all know what is a far better way of combating this sort of problem, which is what we do at home. We wash our hands. We touch raw chicken. We wash our hands before we then touch our salad. And hand washing is absolutely the single most effective way. It's why there are all those signs in the bathroom. And when you go to a restaurant, (laughs) wash your hands before you go back to work. Um, And it's absolutely effective as long as you use warm, soapy water. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is tried and true and, and historically uh, is what keeps us safe and also doesn't create mountains of waste in the form of latex gloves. Yeah, right. I, I, I'm, I'm totally all about not made, creating mountains of waste of latex gloves, that's for sure. Um, you had a very interesting um example about um, some of the unintended consequences of food rules. For example, the ban on trans fats, which I thought was a really great thing to ban. Um, But you point out that it had some unintended consequences. What were they? Yeah. So, I mean, regardless of one's position on trans fats, um, this is the unintended consequences crop up in so many different areas and so many different ways in lawmaking. And ideally, lawmakers can sort of listen to the, you know, there's a, there always is someone pointing out the potential unintended consequences, and oftentimes they get it right. So in this case, it was animal welfare advocates who were saying, hey, listen, if you ban trans fats, then what's going to replace them? Actually, it's going to be palm oil. Mm-hmm. And where is most palm oil produced? It's produced in places like Indonesia, um, Malaysia, in the rainforest. And what are people doing? They're chopping down trees to clear land, or they're slash and burning clear land uh, in order to grow, uh, you know, palm for uh, palm oil. And who lives in those places? Well, it turns out that, you know, Sumatran tigers and other endangered species live in those areas. Mm. So the FDA's decision to ban trans fats, which I was opposed to, um, from a a food choice perspective, uh, also is a bad idea from an environmental uh, perspective, a, a really bad one, because it's going to uh, likely lead to extinctions, and whether or not people are healthier. And I think that the, when the FDA mandated uh, trans fat uh, labeling on food, we saw a dramatic uh, decline both in the use of trans fats in food and in the trans fats Americans were consuming to uh, below what the American Heart Association said was a safe level. Uh, so, you know, they were sort of the FDA uh, ban was a, a solution in search of a problem at that point. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, bad idea uh, for a variety of reasons, in mm-hmm. my opinion, and, and certainly uh, you know, damning tigers to death is a bad idea. Well, at the very least, deforestation. I, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds about the trans fat thing. I mean, I think there was so much trans fat in our, uh, in our diet, and it has been in, you know, conclusively proven to be detrimental to health. Uh, I thought it was a good idea, and I think that since most of the people who consume trans fats tend to be people who are living on fast food or processed foods, it seemed like a really good step in the right direction because a lot of times people who are living on that kind of diet often don't have access to their own food. Um, so that is, uh, you know, it's a bit of a double-edged sword there. Um, but since we have so much to discuss, I'm going to leave that for now. <laughs> Right. Much as I'd like to argue you to the ground on that one, um, <laughs> describe to me. Like you had a really long anecdote about a place in Colorado. I guess that's where. Do you live in Colorado? Uh, no, oh. um, I'm I'm in the uh, D.C. area, although I'm moving to Seattle uh, next month. 
Oh, no kidding. Well, you'll be in the absolutely in the the heartbeat in the in the bosom of the sustainable food movement there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you you had a long anecdote, and this this really made a lot of sense to me. I I, I appreciated this, but at the same time, I think that it's I think it's uh, something that has to be um, addressed. When you talked about Il Mondo Vecchio, it was a small uh, salumeria. The guy was using old world methods. Um, there's dozens of people around, like like this very same person. Um, and then he had been doing business just fine, and then suddenly the USDA imposed these arbitrary rules that forced his, him out of business, essentially. So, so the point of this was is that the rules that are written to fit big business are not really successful as one size fits all because clearly it had a deleterious impact on the small provider. But at the same time, I think that, um, you know, small scale production can often be quite dangerous. Uh, when I look at sort of the statistics from the USDA on slaughterhouses, um, which ones are getting the most infractions, uh, it's a surprising number of smaller ones who are the ones who are being um, shut down because of food safety violations. So I think that it's, you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but is it, do you think that uh, eventually the rules will be rewritten to reflect the differences in scale? Or is there a way to re- rewrite the rules so that there is, um, so that you can a small producer can abide by them, where whilst large producers are also obliged to abide by their own set? I didn't say that very well. I'm sorry, but you know what I'm saying, right, no. Balin? Yeah, no, you you made uh, perfect sense. Um, so I think that, and I propose this in the book that the uh, FDA, the USDA, and others have become so blinded by process mm-hmm. you know, that they demand that you take steps one, two, and three. Um, that they often care less about the outcomes you achieve. And that was the case with Ilmando Vecchia. This guy, Mark Donitis, had founded this uh, uh, salumi company selling you know, pepperoni, salami, other uh, hard-cured meats. And he did so only after teaching at Johnson & Wales University. He taught mm-hmm. food safety and meat cutting. I mean, the guy's an expert by any, you know, any, any uh, measure. Uh, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he was making great products that won awards. Top Chef, or uh, Bravo, rather, referred, referred to him as the Sausage King. Oh, really? um, Yeah, he, he was making great food and, and always making safe food. And he wasn't using nitrates or nitrites, which the USDA at some point decided he would have to use, and or, the, or he would have to prove to them through some sort of long and costly challenge study that has very little likelihood of succeeding, that his food was safe. And he said, you know, listen, I have all these tests that you've run. I have independent tests. I have uh, all this data that shows my food is safe, and yet you're still going to force me either to go out of business, which is what happened, or to prove that my food was safe. And uh-huh. yeah, it's difficult to, to be out of business while you're trying to pay tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so ultimately what... You know, what the USDA was saying is that it was more important that you adhere to some sort of process they have uh, rather than achieving good outcomes. And, and, you know, I use another example in the book of these farmer's market regulations in Mississippi mm-hmm. that say if you're selling meat at a farmer's market, you have to use a refrigerated truck. Yeah. You have to owner, owner lease the truck. You have to sell the meat out of the back of the truck. You have to chill it in the back of the truck. And, you know, someone who wants to sell five or ten uh, steaks at a farmer's market uh, one day a week for four hours right. isn't going to buy or rent a $100,000 truck uh, for the privilege of, of trying to make, you know, $40. Uh, that's that's suicidal. And yeah. so the rules in both cases, whether it's Denise or these farmer's market rules, are ones that, to me, are it's pretty simple. Just demand good outcomes. If you... If you're a farmer selling at a farmer's market and you want to use an ice chest to cool your uh, to cool your food, then you know, to chill it at 40 degrees or below 40 degrees, which is the you know the danger zone at which yeah. uh, bad bacteria starts to grow, great. Require that person to use an ice chest uh, and to have a thermometer in it. That's the key, and to be able to prove that they're keeping their food at the right temperature. Uh, make sure that you know it, your food, if, if it's uh, if you're producing food, that you can demonstrate that it doesn't have E. coli or salmonella or botulism mm-hmm. uh, or something in it. I mean, those are simple requirements that don't tell you how to get to that point, uh, and that become eminently scalable. They allow for the ice chest or the 
refrigerated truck, and they allow competitors of all different sizes to compete. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to go. With, I'm going to go with that. Uh, you know, while you were so- talking about um, this problem or offering that solution, I should say, um, I was thinking to myself, how much of this is a function of the fact that the budget? Uh, the budgets for USDA, for FSIS, for FDA, FSIS is Food Safety and Inspection Services, for those of you who have forgotten that. Um, how much of this, of these kind of blankety rules that are one size fits all, how much are those a reflection of the fact that these agencies have basically been starved of income for the last, I don't know, 16 years at least? Um, and thus, so inspectors and, and all of these kind of big blankety rules are, are really meant to kind of take over for where inspection once was the, was the primary form of, of making sure that food was safe. Do you think that has something to do with why these rules are written the way they are? It's a good question. I mean, I, I would uh, uh, probably we can have a whole show on uh, disagreeing about whether the FDA and the USDA have, in fact, been uh, starved uh, from a budgetary perspective. Um, but I think that it's, uh, it is noteworthy that uh, during the FDA's most recent budget request, I think it was the 2016 budget request, under FISMA, they were, they were supposed to hire I think it was an additional 2,000 inspectors, and they didn't even ask for any money to hire new inspectors, mm-hmm. um, which seems puzzling. Uh, but also, I mean, FISMA is supposed to add very, very microscopically to their inspection capability. We're talking about the highest risk facilities being inspected once every, three I think, years. after the first four or five years of FISMA, and then maybe um, every three years after that. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think it is a fact that uh, that the number of inspectors uh, that are certainly, I mean, my particular wheelhouse is the meat industry, and I know for a fact that the number of inspectors of USDA inspectors has gone way way down, mostly at the behest of the inspe- of the industry itself, which basically wants to you know be allowed to police itself, and I'm not a fan of that. So um, because. I don't think that that is going to create a food safety profile for this country that will benefit us, certainly in the export market or anywhere else. Um, and also, we spend how much money a year on foodborne illness? It's a, it's a, it's a huge sum. I mean, it's 23,000 people a year are sick, or is it 23,000 people a year die? I don't know, but it's big numbers. Um, and that's why I'm like, I, I feel like you can't regulate food enough in this sense. And so I'm sort of dismayed when I hear, well, well, we should let the market do it or we should like let the outcome determine the, you know, and that's when I wonder, like, where do we find the central, you know, the central meeting place where there are re- regulations that make sense for whatever size business you're working in and that there are enough inspectors so that we're not leaving meat plants to police themselves for three to five years at a time. I mean, don't you think that we need to like, I mean, don't you think we really need to like be more riding herd on these, on these meat industry people, for instance, whether you're a small or a large producer? Um, so, I mean, I think the, the meat industry, um, uh, you know, they're, they're sensitive to the fact that uh, their products sometimes uh, sicken and kill people. Um, and that doesn't make them any different than, the sprout or the cantaloupe industry either. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, that most places support some kind of inspections. And the question is, you know, what good are those inspections and who's doing them, obviously, too? Mm-hmm. I think that we've seen dramatic consolidation. I talk about the case of uh, Nyman Ranch, yeah. uh, being, which is you know, run by Bill Nyman um, and Bill, his wife. It's actually uh, it's BN Ranch, to be perfectly, because Nyman Ranch is now the pork producers. It's BN Ranch. Is Bill, oh, Bill Nyman's Sorry, yes. yeah. He sold it to, uh, exactly. Um, and so there was a, a slaughterhouse uh, in Northern California that was processing uh, after hours through the uh, sort of nefariousness of both the food industry and the inspectors there. Um, one bad actor in the food industry, they were processing cancer, uh, cancerous cattle. So, you know, cattle that had some sort of cancer on them. And you know, I, I applaud the in the book and, and here the USDA for stepping in and stopping that. Um, 
But unfortunately, what this did, because the uh, slaughter industry is so consolidated in this country, is that it ensnared all sorts of different you know, good actors, people who had raised their cattle uh, lovingly and, and uh, you know, people who had put a lot of effort and time and money into producing food. Uh, their food was recalled just the same as this one bad actor. Right. And so we had millions of pounds of meat that was recalled. And um, Nicolette uh, Nyman wrote an op-ed in the New York Times actually decrying this uh, shortly after this recall. Yeah, we interviewed her is, here. In fact, I did. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, this is a, a case where consolidation is a bad thing. I know you said that uh, the small... Uh, slaughterhouses are more likely to be problematic um, than bigger ones. And I, I don't have that data, but I'll, I'll totally take your word for it in that case. Um, but I also think it's the case that you can't sell meat uh, in a grocery store unless it's gone through a USDA-inspected facility. And right now that's a huge problem because there are right. fewer and fewer of those, and most of them are, many of them are owned by large producers. Absolutely. And so what we have is this consolidation and the fewer and fewer choices. If you could, uh, you know, slaughter locally and sell at a Whole Foods or some other grocer, um, you would find that Whole Foods had certain expectations and that Whole Foods probably had uh, people inspecting in there. And they would, uh, I think, you know, raise the quality of the slaughter and inspection process. So, I mean, Quite possibly. Uh, Go, go ahead. No, I'm saying you're you're quite possibly if if Whole Foods were determining uh, the food safety of a slaughterhouse that they were perhaps invested in or some in other way. You know what I mean? I mean, I feel like yeah. because of the consolidation of the industry, as you so accurately point out, farmers and ranchers have fewer and fewer options for where to take their stuff. So they they end up taking it. I mean, and in fact, that place that um, Bill and Nicolette Nyman were using, the Rancho Rio, they were shut down. And that was they had yeah. to find a new slaughterhouse, so uh, so that was a huge problem for them. In addition to losing the cost, the value of all of the meat that was recalled and, and then destroyed, which was t- truly a terrible shame. I never understood why the entire uh, inventory of that particular slaughterhouse had to be destroyed in the wake of this one um, cancer-causing or cancer-riddled ca- uh, cow that went through the processing line. But um, you know that was, as you point out, that was the USDA being overzealous. And it's saying it's funny because like in a lot of ways, I kind of agree with you, Balin, but in a lot of other ways, I'm just like, no, wait, wait, we need rules. <laughs> and then as I'm spouting this stuff, I'm thinking, no, wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> so, well, so I mean, I think I think we can we can arrive at uh, a point where we agree. And I think I mean, I wrote uh, this book to speak exactly to people uh, such as yourself. Um, we do need rules, and I think we both agree with that. Um, mm. And I think I'm, I'm questioning the rules that aren't making us or our food safer, that are benefiting right. large producers over small ones, that are you know, hurting people who want to grow fruits and vegetables in their front yard. Um, and I think that you know, for, for you and, and maybe for many of your listeners, too, those rules are not the sort of rules you want. You know, we need rules, but those aren't the rules we need. Yeah, I mean, the um, idea that you can't grow a victory garden is just absurd to me. I mean, I, I mean, and I know that I know that exi- I know those rules exist, and I think they're crazy. Um, but that that could be eliminated. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. go along with that. Um, I wanted to get into um, subsidies for a second, too, because that was another major section of your book. I don't want to do the whole show mm-hmm. on, on food safety. Um, you talk, you suggest that, um, first of all, the crop insurance subsidies have actually been more expensive than direct payments, and I wondered how that worked out. And then I wanted to also address the idea that you, you suggested that we eliminate all subsidies, but wouldn't it make sense to direct payments, either in the form of direct payments or crop insurance uh, insur- payments or subsidies to f- small farmers who are growing row crops. I mean, right now, the people who are walking away with the big bucks from the from the farm bill are the mega agribusinesses that are growing commodity right. crops. So, but, it, but it's a fact that small farmers need, they need help if they have a bad crop year or they have a natural disaster or whatever. Um, they need that crop insurance subsidy as well, as much as anybody else does. So why would you eliminate all subsidies? Well, it, to say that someone needs insurance is different than saying that they need a subsidy for insurance. Um, you know, you and I need car insurance maybe, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily 
uh, need or require some sort of government subsidy to pay for our car insurance. Would we like it? Sure. I'd love for the government to pay for my car insurance or my health insurance or my student loan insurance or, you know, all sorts of other things. But we don't generally, uh, and frankly, if you go to a farmer's market and talk to the small farmers who are selling cucumbers and carrots and all that, they don't really want to be beholden to uh, these government uh, programs and, and, you know, prefer they're, they're intentionally not taking part in these programs because they don't want to be part of that system, uh, part of the, the food system that is the, the subsidized food system. And Well, they would have to so, grow I mean, those crops. They would have to grow the commodity crops in order to qualify for that kind of assistance because as far as I know, and please correct me, I don't believe that people who are growing fruits and vegetables have the same access to either direct payment or uh, crop insurance subsidies. Is that right, or yeah, am I wrong? You're, you're correct. I mean, um, we've moved almost entirely uh, from a system of direct payments, which, you know, by, under which, and I'm oversimplifying here, you know, hey, you grow corn? Okay, great. The government's going to give you X number of dollars for that, that mm-hmm. bushel of corn. Um, but to a system now where the subsidized uh, crop insurance is, is the key. And, yes, it's absolutely true that, uh, for the most part, that benefits people who grow corn and soy and alfalfa and sugar beets and cotton right. and, and things like that that are not, uh, you know, they're not apples or... Well, they're commodity uh, crops. Really. They're traded on the, in futures. They're traded on the stock market. I mean, they have a giant export mm-hmm. market. It's kind of a it's, mm-hmm. a it's a whole different business in my mind. It's not the same thing as it's mega agribusiness to me. It's not the same as a farmer who's, you know, got 200 acres and is, you know, got his mixed use farm or whatever. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that those I think that farmers should have uh, those kinds of smaller farmers should, in fact, enjoy the benefits of a crop insurance um, subsidy in case of natural disaster or a crop fails, because you've got to make sure that the food supply remains robust, right? So if you, if you let those guys dangle the way they have now and you don't give them um, you know, more, uh, more economic um, cushioning, we're not going to have more people going into that, into that type of, of farming, Right. We're just going to see um, more and more consolidation. I mean, I if we remove the, the subsidies from the corn and the soy farmers, yeah, that maybe not all, but some of them certainly will go into uh, more diversified fields. And I think also, I mean, my definition of sustainability in the book is one that requires that farmers actually be able to support themselves. Right. Um, and I think if, if uh, you're in farming because you uh, want some sort of government subsidy. And again, I don't think those, uh, the numbers of such people are, are great. I think they're uh, pretty pretty tiny. Um, then you're not in farming to be sustainable. And I think that, I mean, my whole book is a plea to uh, for us to create a more sustainable agricultural system. And that requires, and, and certainly in cases of subsidies, regardless of whether a farmer is growing a food that you eat and enjoy or a food that you detest and, and don't like at all, um, that farmer should stand on their own two feet. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, we're going to move on. <laughs> we're going to agree to disagree because I want to get into this school lunch thing, man. I told you I was going to torture you over this. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I find your politics just fascinating. Would you call yourself a libertarian? Is that your... I would, in fact, call myself that. Yeah, yes. that's what I mean. I'm not a very sophisticated political thinker, but that's it sounds like that. OK, I'm yeah. I am a diehard Democrat. In fact, I could be called a social Democrat because I think that the government should basically pay for freaking everything. Like I love Obamacare, for example. Love it. Um, but from your point of view, obviously, I shouldn't have it. I shouldn't have federally subsidized health insurance. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not a fan, and nor, nor am I a fan of my own. And I'm, I'm thankful that my girlfriend uh, was able to add me to her insurance. But I saw my uh, premiums go up from something like, you know, two hundred dollars a month under the, you know, before Obamacare to two twenty five under the, you know, gold or whatever the top plan mm-hmm. was. Um, and now my most recent, uh, before I was added to my girlfriend's. Uh, accounts, uh, I was paying like $400 a month for the, the lowest level of current uh, coverage. Mm. So, well, I had the opposite experience. Stuck. I had, first of all, I had a pre-existing condition, 
And so I couldn't move my insurance to another program. Mm. And I was paying $23,000 a year for myself and my daughter before Obamacare. And when Obamacare came in, I got the top level plan because I had, you know, was doing continuing care and it was half the price. So there you go. See, we each have our story. But um, anyway, to go back to um, school lunch here now. But this was this was in your food waste chapter, which I thought was excellent. Um, that's obviously one of the biggest issues that we face as a nation and around the world. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to get into the standards of identity thing, but we, we may not have time for that. So in the case of the school lunch program and the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, you suggested that uh, much of the national problem with waste, well, not much of it, but some of the national problem with waste is coming from the school lunch program. And you also suggested that if parents make their lunch, the, their kids' school lunch from leftovers and or restaurants donated their unwanted food to school lunch programs, we would waste mm-hmm. far less food. Mm-hmm. I mean... I think in a perfect world, yeah, that's a great idea. Do you have kids? Uh, no, thankfully, no. No, I'm, I'm uh, very, very happy to uh, uh, to be kid free. Yeah, let that let the other people deal with that. Well, first of all, before the show, we were like laughing in the studio because the people in the studio are much younger than I am, and they, you know, their their standard operating procedure was even if they brought a brown bag lunch was to toss it and go right to the 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee instead. Now, I think that that's wrong. I don't think that's good. And I know my daughter, for whom I prepared at lunch every single day until she was a graduated senior, um, she also often discarded her lunch, even though it was something that I would make specifically you know, to her taste. Or sometimes they would trade it. But my point is, is that most parents don't really have the luxury of making a lunch for their kids for whatever reason. Um, and also that restaurants, the idea of putting together a program where restaurants donated discarded food and turning it into something that, that a school cafeteria could use, I, I find completely impractical. So though I agree with you that the school lunch program has problems, I'm also going to point out to you that a Harvard study conducted most just this past year show that kids need a minimum of 25 to 30 minutes to eat if the menu is other than convenience or fast foods like salad or vegetables or fresh fruit. And kids who were given less time for lunch were also less likely to choose the healthy options. And when they gave the kids more time to eat, they ate the fruits and the vegetables. It's And, and I know this is true. And by the way, kids in elementary school are often going for lunch at like 10.45 a.m., or 11 a.m. And they have 20 minutes. My kid had 20 minutes in high school to eat lunch. So I, I think that there's the problem with waste is more the, the way the lunch periods are structured rather than what is being actually presented to the children. I mean, I, I support the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. Um, I support trying to get kids to eat more fruits and vegetables because I think if you do that when they're young, then they are more likely to do that as they get older. And I, I have empirical experience with my own child and with other children in my acquaintanceship who have had the same experiences where the kids eat well because they get used to that stuff when they're young. So my point to you is that there has to be a better solution than just throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, well, school lunch programs don't work, so let's just scrap them. I mean, for some kids, that's the only meal they get. So you, gotta, you have to answer that. What would you do to fix the school lunch program? It has to be fixed. It can't be scrapped. You can't have people bringing okay, well, a brown bag. I, I, you're free not to like my solution, but I, I do propose <laughs> I it in the book. Um, I, mean, I think I you think, get that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the current situation is, well, I'll actually, I'll take your, your daughter, you said, who graduated, um, and you made her, her lunch every day. My, my parents uh, told me to start making my own lunch when I was in elementary or middle school, and I was happy mm-hmm. to do that. And I, um, you know, I would use leftovers, and I would eat them. Um, and so, you know, there, I have a, perhaps a, a different tale. I think that any parent who can afford uh, to purchase food uh, or to use leftovers, absolutely can and should. Um, I think that you know the, the example of uh, your uh, colleagues who you know go to Seven Eleven, they throw out their the meal and then go to Seven Eleven to get a Slurpee um, is you know is not uncommon, but is abominable. And I think that those kids are getting money somewhere. Um, um, yeah. Unless they're unless they're working, they're they're. 
getting uh, money, presumably from parents, uh, and the parents should stop giving their kids money. Give them a sandwich and send them off to school or whatever else it is that they uh, might want their kid to eat, um, and don't give them money. And you know, you'll find that uh, a hungry kid uh, eats a sandwich. And, and as far as uh, restaurants and and grocers and others partnering up with uh, with schools to offer. Uh, good lunches to kids who can't otherwise eat. I, I think this is an eminently more reasonable and sensible uh, approach. I don't think it's going to work in every single school, um, in every single town. You know, you have some towns in middle America that, that you know, maybe have one restaurant at most. Um, and I think a better solution than creating this whole lunchroom thing where we have, you know, two out of every three dollars are spent not on food, uh, in schools, but they're spent on overhead. They're spent on staffing and, uh, you know, insurance and ovens and, and things like that. Yeah. Equipment. I know, but my um, argument that, with you is that is that, that same two out of $3 would be spent on amassing food from other sources that then had to be converted into a lunch program. So I don't see that that's actually the answer. That's my point. Your infrastructural problems of getting food from various restaurants and grocery stores and into a lunch program and and recycled into food. You can't just, you know, it has to be made into a meal. So um, so I, I, I see that I... You know, I understand what you're t- what you're driving at, but I, I think that the that the solution is to give ki- is to restructure the lunch program in terms of giving kids more time um, to eat and having lunch at a reasonable time of day instead of either in the morning or at two o'clock in the afternoon when they're out of their minds already. Um, but unfortunately, Balin, I regret to say we I've actually run out of time. I mean, I didn't even get to half of this, and I didn't get to torture anywhere near as much as I wanted to about the school <laughs> lunch thing. You've been such a good sport, though with me. <laughs> I'm really a very nice person. And I, I just thought, I thought your book was really interesting and really good and um, something worth arguing about because I thought, you know, all of the issues that you bring up are truly very important. And I think it's great to have, you know, different opinions out there to try to come to some solutions. So like with the school lunch thing, we, you, you and I are both sort of on the same side in terms of food waste, but we both have a different approach to, to solving it. And I think that my approach, um, although I, I don't really have one aside from adding more time to the program, um, is, is better than yours for right now. And I'm just going to, I'm getting the last word here. <laughs> hey, it's your show. It's, your it's show. my show. But um, please stay in touch with me. And, um, you know, I, I might come back to you and, and we'll have another go at some of the other issues that you brought up because they really were great and your, your arguments were well formulated. So I appreciate your, your time very, very much. And uh, thanks for the book, which I enjoyed. And uh, thanks to my sponsor, New York State Certified and Grown. Did I get that right, Dave? Yes. Grown and certified. Grown and certified. New York State grown and certified. One day I will get that correct. New York State grown and certified. And remember, fall fundraising, please hit the button. Join our family. Support the cause. There's a lot more good stuff going on on this radio station than just my doom and gloom hour. So, you know, check the, check, check the other shows out, too. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Next week we have the amazing Chris Leonard. Author of the chain of uh, the meat racket, um, and he has a brand new uh, major major article coming out, which I have not seen yet. But I'm scooping everybody on this, and uh, he will be my guest next week. So please tune in next Monday at twelve, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.